Um, if you're visiting Canterbury Gardens Community Church, one of our hearts is to be with, uh, about God's mission, and particularly God's mission locally and also across the globe. And these wonderful couple behind me and their kids, who are oh, some of the kids are here, um, have been serving uh, uh, their saviour in Poland, and they've come um, back to Australia. I was, I was about to say home, but I'm not going to say that. So they came back to Australia, um, and now they're going to show about the season that God's taking them on. So I'm going to stop talking and over to you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. It's, um, it's great, again, to have the privilege to be here in this spot and see you all and share again. Um, we are aware that uh, some of you don't really know us very well. We've been away for two and a half years. Things change in that time. We've changed, so uh, I'm assuming you've all changed and there's some new faces. Uh, should be a little bit of our thunder, so you know our names. That's okay. That's okay. We'll organise something. Um, originally, we're from Queensland, and we came down to Melbourne for me to complete my studies at what was then BCV, what is now MST, in 2005. And uh, it was very soon after we arrived in Melbourne that we found ourselves brought by God to fellowship here at Canterbury Gardens. Uh, we were embraced into this church. I say that in every sense of the word. Um, and we felt very loved and the church supported us during that time. And uh, during those years that we were in Melbourne, 2005 to 2008, uh, this church family was able to walk with us as we sensed God calling us firstly to overseas mission and then to missionary, uh, missionary service in Poland. Uh, we were commissioned by this church. This is our primary sending church. Uh, and we left in July, June, July 2008. Um, that's a quick overview of us. We just want to very um, officially and publicly say thank you to you for all of your support, your prayers. We needed them. We need them. And we take, take that to our hearts every time. We can actually feel people praying for us in Poland. Sometimes something will happen. You'll just think, wow, someone must have been praying. So thank you. And also, since we've been back, we've been able to come back and just hit the ground running because of your support and your care for us. Um, we came with suitcases, and now we have a household. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so what have we been doing since we did last see you in 2014? Well, uh, in July of that year, we returned to Poland to continue serving in a small Baptist church plant in the southern city of Apollo. Uh, when we returned to that church, uh, things had changed dramatically. We had been in Australia for about eight, nine months, and in the time since we were last over with that church family, uh, they had lost all of their church leaders. All the elders had gone, the pastor had left, and we came back to essentially what was a very uh, committed, a very fervent group of young believers in the faith, but they were, were lost and, and really wanting some help. Uh, it was a privilege for us to head back and to work with that group over the last couple of years, to train them, to disciple them, to mentor them, to walk through life with them and encourage and support them through many, many difficult situations. And through all of that, it was exciting to see what God did. Uh, that church grew and it strengthened in both uh, numbers and in the maturity of the faith of the believers in that church to the point where in 2015... In October of that year, the church was at a point where it could become a 
Baptist church in its own right, no longer a church plant supported by a mother church, but an independent church. It was a very exciting time for the church, something that we celebrated as really this was the, the advent of God's goodness. Um, it was in amongst all of that excitement that, uh, and our celebration of what God was doing in that place that um, then things changed a little bit for our family. So in January last year, we were reviewing our lives and reflecting on what God had been doing in the church and really praying for fresh direction. And um, we had practical things in our family that we knew we needed some changes to help um, with some support for education. And so we were praying, Lord, help us find a way through. What is it that you, you would have us do? And to our surprise, it was a very clear call out of Poland um, we've questioned that a number of times and looked at other ways, could we kind of work things, and it was very clear that God had actually shut the door for us in Poland. Um, so in February of last year, we let, let everyone know, our, um, our team that we've been working with, our nationals that we've been working with, and, and our mission and our supporters, and really... Um, just had to take that step of faith that God had something else for us and uh, then we pretty much had to work our way out of the job and by the strengthening and the growing of the church it was really clear by the time we left that we needed to leave. Um, I think I can say this Chris is a pretty strong leader quite decisive and for the young leaders to be able to grow and become strong and decisive themselves, we actually had to get out of the road. So we praise God that as we left, those young leaders were really ready to stand up and take on the responsibilities. Um, we praise God for that. Um, it's clearly his work in um, their lives and also ours in, in having to release that um, so we thank God for that. And then, yeah, so we, we, we left in November. Mm-hmm. And we came back to Australia still, uh, this is nine, ten months after making the decision that, uh, to actually leave, still not knowing what God actually had us leaving to. Uh, we thought that, you know, in July, June, July, perhaps we'd know by the time we left and that would be good. We'd have the peace in our hearts as we went out and he didn't do that. Um, and then we came back to Australia and we thought, perhaps now that we're out, he'll let us know. Well, he didn't do that either. And we're at a point at the moment where we still don't know what God has for us exactly. However, God has had us on a road. He has been shaping us in this season of waiting and being patient. He's been doing a lot of work in our hearts and having us think about what he has done in our lives to this point in time the lessons that he has taught us, the experiences that he has taken us through, how he's equipped us, and what passions he's put still within our hearts to serve him in this world. And on that basis, in December, we realised that God was very much still calling us to participate in overseas mission. So coming back to Australia was not coming back to Australia to stay. That was challenging in some ways, and yet there was an enormous peace about that. Uh, we still don't know exactly what that looks like. However, we have been proactive. And we had received some opportunities of ministry in Australia that we declined uh, to step out in faith further. And in June, it's just during this past week, 
we have uh, had been having conversations with our missionary agency, Send International, which is based in the US, about some possibilities, one particular possibility. We don't know if that's what God wants, and we still hold that possibility loosely too. We've come this far not grabbing hold of anything, and we're not going to start doing it now. We're going to wait for him to confirm that to us. Both sides are praying about that. We've shared the details about that with the elders of the church, and they're also praying. And we'd really, really value your prayers for us as we continue to wait on God's leading. For now, practically speaking, we are expecting to be in the Melbourne area until mid-May. And we praise God that he's provided accommodation and other things that we need in life to enable that to happen. But he's also allowed us to stay not too deeply rooted, mobile, ready to go. And we are just going to keep you posted. We thank you for walking the journey with us to this point, And we would love to keep walking it with you. We will keep you posted as God lets us know things. We'll let you know too. But praise him that he is Lord of all. Amen. Um, can I get the elders to come up? We're going to pray for these guys. John, do you mind praying? Yeah, that's great. If God sends Chris halfway through the sermon, um, Dean, if you'd like to take his notes. <laughs> we had prearranged that. We had prearranged that. Okay, that's great. <clears throat> hey, what a great story. What a great story of faithfulness of God to these people. And doesn't he do that to, to really grow us in our faith, to not necessarily tell us exactly what's going on at that time so that we do grow, so that he continues to transform us and to help us to trust in him even more. Because when we see what he's doing, and it is a surprise often, isn't it? Eh? We see, God, you know exactly what you're doing here. There is no reason why we would doubt you. So let's not doubt him now. Let's pray for these guys in the journey that God has for them in the kingdom that we are all uh, part of. Let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the whole Heirs family. We thank you uh, that you know that they're broken people, they're sinful people, just like us, Lord God, and yet they have been lifted up, Father, because of what your Son has done in their lives and the trust they have in you. We are nothing but for you, Lord God, and we admit that, and we are thankful that that is the true thing, Lord God, that it's only you that can lift us, and we we glorify you as a result of that. Father, would you uh, take this family, Uh, Would you take the plans that are being made, Lord God, and would you use them, and would you use them to glorify yourself? Uh, Father, the place that they are to to go to, where you are preparing for them, Father, would you please go ahead? Would you pave the way, Lord God, so that it is so obvious as to what's to happen here and the people that they are to meet with, the people that they are to serve with, Father, for your glory? Father, we love this family. We love uh, Chris and Judy and the kids too, Father, and we ask your care and your blessing on them as they grow further in you for the betterment of your kingdom in Jesus name we pray amen Uh, as Chris is setting up his microphone and things um, what I would like you to do is if you have a phone or a piece of paper write these three things down one God What are you saying to me? Two, God, what are you saying to us? And three, God, who will I share this with today? 
God, what are you saying to me? God, what are you saying to us? And third one, who will I share this with today? I'm going to pray for us and for Chris. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege to gather around your word as we continue this time of worship. Settle our hearts and our minds. Drown out the noises that may be going on as we hear through your word, through your servant, Chris. Spirit, I pray that you empower Chris to preach the word. We pray that you will be glorified in your mighty name. Amen. Am I on? Oh, good. You really cannot tell. Every person that gets up and says that, am I on, am I on, I sit and I think, surely you can hear yourself. You really can't. You really can't. You know, this is a significant day. Would you like to know why? This is the first time I ever felt that I had to bring my glasses with me into the pulpit. (laughs) I was at home earlier and I said to Judy, you think? And she said, that's not to you. I said, yeah, I better. Because the text is getting smaller. Um, I have one more request. Is it possible to get a glass of water? That would be fantastic. Thank you. My friends, it is good to be back with you. And um, I want to share with you today from the Gospel of Luke. Tali had us there earlier in chapter 23. Just flip back two chapters into chapter 21, and that's where we're going to be reading from today. I know it is super tempting to sit and just listen, but if you have access to a Bible, either sitting beside you on the seat or on your phone or a tablet, grab one. We are going to be in the text a little bit today, and I really want you to see what's there. As I'm about to share in a moment, we have a tendency with the Word of God to think we've got the general gist of some passages, but it's, it's a bit of a trap. We need to spend time with the word open in front of us. We need to look at what it actually says and what it actually doesn't say. Because only then can we really understand what God is actually saying to us through a specific text. So if you've got it there, open it up. Luke chapter 21, and this is a short passage. This Bible reading is not going to take a long time. Let's begin in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. That's it. I'm going to pray again. Lord Jesus, we need you. I need you. Lord, we want you to speak and we want you to be glorified. We want you to sanctify our lives and we want you to sanctify your church. Lord, we want to grow. We want to understand what you're saying so that we can listen, so that we can respond. Lord Jesus, you are everything. And so, Lord, use my mouth. Purify my heart. Give me the courage to bring your word in truth. Amen. I want to be straight up with you. I 
this has been one of the most difficult sermons I've ever prepared. It really has. Thinking, you serious? That's not a very big passage. That's not a very complicated passage. But what made it difficult is what I shared about a moment ago, is that I presumed on the skim reading that I knew exactly what I was talking about. But as I sat and studied this passage, I started to struggle a lot. And I've struggled all week. Because I would come to a point, I think, it's about this. This is really the guts of what Jesus is wanting to say here. And so I'd start to structure it up and go to the passage to try and find the textual support for that message from this passage. And you know what? There were gaps. It wasn't there. I must have done this several times. And in the end, I was beat. I was stumped. For example, there are several potential things that that we could think this passage is about. When we read it, we could think, okay, this widow gave all that she had. So this, this passage is perhaps about us giving all we've got to Jesus. That's what it's about. And Jesus wants us to follow her example. In fact, he kind of compares her giving to theirs. They gave part out of their abundance. She gave all from her little. But there was a couple of problems with that. Jesus never says that the rich people in their giving are doing anything wrong. And Jesus never says that the widow has done something wonderful or right. Read it again. It's not there. There is no indication that their giving, what the rich have done, is actually that much different from what she did. Sure, the amount is different. The proportion is different. But it's certainly not presented as being right or wrong. And it's significant that that is not in the text. Okay, I was having trouble with that. I thought, well, let's be fresh. Perhaps this is about simply giving God whatever you have. She didn't have much. We know that, just the two copper coins. And there would have been many reasons for her to hold on to those coins, but she didn't. And she went and she gave what she had. It wasn't impressive. It wasn't significant in the whole scheme of things, but she gave it. Yeah. Maybe that's what it's about, that we too as believers should take whatever we have, even when we feel it's not much, even when we feel we don't have a lot to offer God, we give it anyway, believing that that sort of gift pleases Him. But again, there's problems. We said a moment ago, she wasn't held up as an example. She wasn't commended for her giving. Jesus never says in this passage, go and do likewise. Okay, another potential reading or understanding of this passage was perhaps to focus on the faith element. She gave everything she had. What was going to happen to this widow when she left the temple that day? We don't know. 
But if she'd given everything that she had to give, well, practically speaking, it didn't look very good for her. What faith to put ourselves in the hands of, the, of a God who we know cares about us, who has promised to look after our needs. What faith she had in her heart to do that. But there was no mention in this text that Jesus was impressed by her giving everything she had. Nor that she gave in faith. The text says nothing about the state of this widow's heart and how much faith she had. Well, you think surely she had faith. That was her last two coins. She gave them trusting, right? The text does not say that. Jesus doesn't say that she's exemplary. He doesn't tell his disciples to go and copy that example. I was really struggling. Perhaps this was less about the woman. Perhaps this was more a message to disciples than any outsiders who were looking at other people about judging the actions of others, about the giving of others and what they're bothering to contribute. We know that's an issue. We know perhaps in our own hearts we tend to do that. While it appeared that the rich gave more, it was actually not the case. In terms of percentage, she gave more, even though nobody apart from God would ever know that. That would make this a similar message to say in 1 Samuel when, when Samuel came and had to anoint the next king of Israel and he looked at the sons and he looked at the oldest and thought, whoa, impressive on the outside. This is the one. And he was told, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. But there are problems here too. The disciples didn't judge her for her actions. They didn't say anything. They weren't negative toward her. They weren't condemning her. They weren't frowning upon her. So why would Jesus be correcting them for something that they never did? Moreover, as I said a moment ago, we don't know the state of her heart. Was her giving actually an act of devotion to God? Was she any more pure in heart than the rich people who came and gave? The text doesn't tell us. We don't know because it doesn't say. Well, it's easy to prepare something based upon what we would like it to say. But to prepare something based upon what it actually says, sometimes that's a little bit more difficult because we would like it to say more, but it doesn't. And I was stumped. I'll be honest. I was absolutely stumped. I literally thought, I don't know if I can get up on Sunday and preach from this passage. I would rather not get up and preach at all than get up and tell you something that's not there. If it's this passage, I need to be convinced in my heart that what I'm delivering to you is God's word. Let me just say, all of those topics that I just told you, they're good topics. And you can preach those topics from other passages in the Bible. In fact, many of them you can preach from other passages in the book of Luke, but not from this one. I... I'm very grateful 
humbly grateful for the, the scholarship and the time and the dedication that other people, other scholars have spent in studying God's word. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that I will turn to them and I will get their help. And in this case, I am indebted to other scholars. Because as I read one of them, the penny dropped. I could not see why Jesus was so pleased with this widow. It's because he wasn't. How can that be? Well, let's look carefully together at the passage to see why. That's why I want you to have it open. So what was going on? Let's look at a broad context of what was going on with Jesus before we come to this little piece of text. Because that was another struggle I had. I couldn't see how this fitted in the context. A lot seemed to be going on around this little story. And then there was this in the middle. (laughs) What's that all about? So I had another look. Jesus had been ministering. You read through the Gospel of Luke and he'd, been, he'd, he'd come and he was ministering to people about the coming of the kingdom of God and he was the expression of that kingdom. It is here among you. People weren't getting that, but it was the truth. Jesus was the beginning of the coming of the kingdom of God and in his life, people could see kingdom life, kingdom freedom, kingdom hope. He healed people. He restored people. He cared for people. He shared the heart of God in living color. And then there is a key change because in Luke chapter 19, he came and had his triumphal entry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He came into Jerusalem and his heart broke. From chapter 19 on, after that entry, we see that Jesus engages with the problem that is in front of him. And it is a deep problem. He is confronted with the corrupt and twisted religious system of show and external piety that exploited the weak. And his heart broke. That's why We read in chapter 19 that he wept over Jerusalem because they were wrapped up in this religious system and they were missing the Messiah. He was right there. And then we read that Jesus went in and cleansed the temple. This expression, this this, uh, living color of this religious, gross, vile, vomitous system, and there it was expressing itself out. The money changers were changing it out and making their nice profit. People were coming and going, but they were missing the point. And he came in and he was furious. He was so angry because people were missing it. And then he condemned the hypocrisy and the heartlessness and the merciless treatment of the religious leaders. He was absolutely scathing. Read with me the little passage just before chapter 21 begins. Chapter 20, verses 45. And in the hearing of all the people, 
he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. He was not impressed. Not impressed. In fact, jump across to Matthew chapter 23. And let's see Jesus really unleash. Then Jesus said to the crowds, 23 verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and said to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make the phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They're all about show. Jump down to verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, brood of vipers, This is a scathing attack. A scathing attack. Jesus had had a gutful. Here he was coming to try and share with his people, the people of Israel, the reality that God's kingdom, God's grace, God's love had come down from heaven and was in their midst the God's plan of salvation that he talked about all through the Old Testament, it was finally happening. Jesus was here. The Messiah had come. God was cranking the wheel of his salvation plan. And they were wrapped up in this system that was strangling them, that would not let them see what God was doing, that would not let them understand the God of grace, that would not let them see that the heart of the Messiah was right there. This Messiah that came, he healed. He he had the children come to him. He taught. He loved. 
He cared. The heart of God on display. And they would not let them. They would not let them come. That's the context. Now, look at Luke chapter 21. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Okay. So Jesus, those woes that we just talked about, Jesus was in the temple. That was directly before this occurred. Jesus had just unloaded. And now, he looks up, and this is what he sees. He sees the rich coming in to the treasury of the temple to put in their offerings. There's no condemnation here. We talked about that. But this is the function of the system that he has just unloaded on. This is the system rolling along. That's not good. We know how he feels. We know how he feels about this. And I think it must have broken his heart. But if that wasn't bad enough, then comes in this poor widow. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. How is this set up? Okay, in the temple, this took place in the court of women. And there were 13 offering boxes in that court. And they were along the side under a colonnade near the, near the treasury area where they would take the money in at the end of the day. 13 of these boxes, shaped like trumpets, upside down, little opening at the top, swollen at the bottom. And the different boxes had different symbols on them which actually indicated which offering was to go in which box. And there were various offerings for various things. Some were for uh, pigeons, which would later the money would be changed out, number of pigeons given and sacrificed, or, or doves. Uh, there was a box for incense, for wood, for upkeep of the temple, gold. There was a couple of, uh, of these receptacles that were for free will offerings. So basically this was a system where people came in, it was very public giving. Everyone saw what everyone else gave and what they gave it to, could make sure that the right things were given in the right amounts, and then people also saw what was a free will offering, where that went in, and that was the over and above. Very public, very showy. It matches the system that it was a part of. And this lady came in, this poor widow. A poor widow came in. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem right there. Why was she poor? that actually should not have been the case in Israel it was part of God's law God's system that he'd given his people that they should care for widows they should care for the needy they should care for the broken it's funny it sounds like the same heart as what Jesus had yes it is God's system was never meant to be out of sync with the teaching of Jesus and yet here it was there should not have been any poor widows Deuteronomy 14 and 24 clearly spell that out it was a responsible of the structure given the religious structure given to the people of Israel that they would be cared for the book of Ruth 
in the Old Testament also relates this priority within the nation of Israel and how her kinsmen, when she was widowed, took up their obligation to care for her even though she was a foreigner who had married into the nation. Widows were to be cared for. In the New Testament, Jesus reiterated that truth everywhere, Luke in particular. And it was also a high priority in the early church after Jesus' time, in Acts 6, to care for the widows. The fact that she was poor was a problem. God had given his people a religious system. Was it perfect? No. No, it was not. It was given because it was supposed to point toward the Savior. It wasn't perfect, but it did share the same heart. It included the temple as a place of offering, sacrifice, and worship. It was a system where people were instructed to give the offerings, where everyone was called to contribute correctly in the right proportions. But it was a system that was designed to be fair, which organized things in such a way as to make sure that everyone was being looked after, properly cared for, protected, especially those who are weak and vulnerable. It was supposed to care for widows. So God's way had been broken. It had become twisted, warped. Instead of preventing hardship, poverty, and destitution, it had now become the very mechanism in the nation that was causing it. How twisted is that? It's interesting. We read she put in two small copper coins, two lepta. They were the smallest coin available. Some of you may have read, you may have even uh, read the little note in your Bible. There it is. I didn't go too far for that information, did I? It's there in most of our Bibles. You know what is interesting, though, is do you know what the minimum permissible offering amount was in the temple? Two lepta. This was a small amount. It was... One 128th of a day's wage for labourer. certainly wasn't enough to really live on, but it's all she had. It's really significant that what she gave was the minimum allowed amount. We learn later that it's all she had to live on. How is she going to survive? If it's all that she had to live on, how is she going to eat? How is she going to get through? You know, we don't know... Scripture doesn't tell us what happened to that lady. But her giving that day put her in a situation where she might very well have gone home and died. That sounds dramatic, doesn't it? But you know what? That's the reality. There was no social security. The system that technically was there to protect her was the very one that was squeezing her to death. We might think, well, as we mentioned earlier, perhaps she was giving in, in faith, trusting that God would look after her. Well, God had given the mechanism to look after her, and that had failed her. And you know what? The text says nothing about faith, as we mentioned. If the point of the text was to commend this lady's faith, you know what? It would have said so. Jesus was good at doing that. It's just not there. So she had scraped together this, this amount to the point of potential starvation. 
the fact that that was the minimum amount allowed to be given as an offering, offering, you know what that speaks of? Religious obligation. She was giving everything because of a system that demanded payment. This was a system of showy external religiosity that didn't think twice about repossessing houses. We read it in the verses right above this. That was what this system did. It repossessed their homes. It turfed them out on the street. You think it's going to worry if she has some food at home? I don't think so. This system placed unfair, unnecessary, burdensome demands on people. Washings. Sabbath. Jesus dealt with this stuff all the time. Convincing the people that they needed to perform, that they needed to jump through the hoops if they wanted to be a part of God's people. They need to jump through the hoops if they want to be acceptable to God. If they want to please God, they better shape up. Even if it costs them their life. Get with the program. Even to be worthy of God's salvation and being a part of that plan. This is shocking stuff. It's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And you know, as I study this, Jesus was angry. I was angry. This is wrong. Jesus hated this system. Oh boy, did he hate this system. He had spent himself. He had stood in those temple courts and condemned. And now he looks up and he looks across the treasury and he witnesses the vile in, as, it, as it plays out right in front of his eyes a widow that would give her last and sacrifice her life for a, for a stinking lie this is wrong why would God who had clearly shown his desire to protect the weak the vulnerable, the needy why would he want that woman to be given those last two coins That was not his plan. To potentially throw away her very life to something that stood for corruption. Jesus doesn't commend the widow for her actions because her actions are wrong. They're part of a broken, warped system of empty, pious, external religious pomp. Jesus was angry. Boy, was he angry. He despised that corrupted system. You know why? Two reasons. Because it destroyed lives. Absolutely destroyed them. And secondly, because it took people away from him. You could say, well, isn't that part of destroying lives? Well, technically you're correct. But two points sounded better than one. Jesus was about to go to the cross. He was about to pay the price for sins. He was about to complete that phase of God's salvation plan. He is the center point of God's salvation. And he was about to do what had to be done to pay the price for the sins of the world so that anybody might come. Anybody might come and experience the forgiveness that is freely given through the blood of Jesus. Be forgiven, washed clean, made right before the living God. It was not a cheap sacrifice. It was very costly. But he was set to go. 
This is right before he goes and is arrested. And here he is, distressed, distressed, because you know what? It doesn't matter if it's before the cross or after the cross. This thing is so vile and insidious that it's going to keep going. And he's got his disciples and he said, guys, this is what we are dealing with. This foul thing is what we must fight. Jesus gave them a case in point that I hope they never forgot and neither should we. He taught them that day because he knew that they would need it. They were about to be sent out into the world with the Great Commission, with the news of the gospel, and you know what they were going to struggle with in their own spirits? That same tendency. You know what they were going to struggle with in the culture and the society? That same tendency. That was a battle that they needed to be aware of and that they would need to always be prepared to fight. This is the same thing that in the Reformation had Martin Luther go and nail his theses to the door in Wittenberg. It was against exactly the same thing. Buying indulgences, having to jump through a hoop, do extra things in order to be pleasing and acceptable to the living God. It's not true. It is not true. And it's kept going. This is still with us today. You know, when Judy and I were living on the Sunshine Coast ooh, 17 years ago, we lived upstairs, and downstairs was a little unit that somebody else was renting off the owners. We were renting upstairs. And there was a lady living there, and she had nothing. But you know what one of her favorite things was to do? Was to sit and watch the television evangelists. And she would go... And she would sit by the television screen and she would touch the screen because she had some difficult health issues, praying for the healing. And you know what she did with her money? She sent it all. She lived in abject poverty, thinking that by the sending all of her money, that would somehow earn her way into the approval, acceptance, and possibly the healing of God. You think, ah. Oh. But that was Nambor 16 years ago. Yesterday, yesterday, we've moved into our new flat and I got talking, I met a new neighbour. Lovely guy, Austrian. I told him what I did for a living. Oh, interesting, he said. And you know the first thing he told me about was how when he lived in Austria and his wife, when they were younger, his wife's family, well, everybody, how they were put under the duress of the church tax. The first thing he shared with me. And he told me about how his wife's family could not pay the tax, wanted to emigrate and had to sell their things in order to pay their debt of tax to the church. He told me about the day that there was no television, they just had a radio deck collector came in, ripped the plug out of the wall and marched out of the house. He said, for church tax. I didn't know what to say. Sorry. I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry. But this is people's experience. 
This is people's experience. And it's wrong because that experience destroys lives. That experience draws people away from Jesus. My friends, please, let me say this. You know why Jesus was angry? Because he loved people. He cared about them. He really did. He loved them enough to go to the cross. So when he's angry here, don't think, ooh, angry Jesus. No, loving Jesus, it's just expressed in anger. I say the next part really with some fear and trepidation Lord Jesus help me the reality is that that destructive form of performance religion is not always so far away it can creep into our lives and the life of our fellowship we can so easily fall into the trap of focusing on outward appearances and performance, participation, how things are looking in our Christian service and, and they end up placing unnecessary, unhelpful and ultimately destructive burdens upon ourselves and those around us as well. Is this something which is affecting us? Do you sometimes feel that you have to perform in order to be acceptable or perhaps even to be noticed? If yes, then we have a problem. Do you sometimes feel the pressure of expectation to, to be contributing or giving? If yes, then we have a problem. Do sometimes you feel a bit inferior to others because of their apparent talents and abilities? If yes, then we have a problem. Do you sometimes feel that you're only valued for what you can give, not for just who you are? If yes, then we have a problem. Are you tired? Are you hurting? Are you broken? But feel that you can't say no? Yes, then we've got a real problem. Are you feeling there's no room to fail? Yes, then we've got a problem. Are you feeling that you'll just never be good enough, clever enough, talented enough, or able to do enough? If yes, then folks, we've got a real problem. You know, the reality is there are some, some amongst us who are absolutely run ragged. There are some amongst us that are serving to the point where it's affecting their health, their marriage, their family. What is happening? What is happening? 
There are others who are riddled with feelings of, feelings of guilt, inadequacy. Why? What is happening here? This is not what Jesus died for. This is not the life that he has called you and I to. This is the same vile, vomitous, external pomp religion that Jesus was so upset about. And I'll be honest, it upsets me too. Friends, we don't want to inadvertently create a church culture where people feel that they have to be doing a certain amount to be involved to a certain extent in order to be accepted or included. We don't want a culture where those who are more on display or up the front or who are in more visible roles are in any way depicted as being any more valuable than anyone else. We want a church culture where all of us know and are constantly reminded that we are all completely accepted, deeply loved, and of infinite value because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We were all equally lost in sin and needed to be saved. Christ came and died for all of us. We've all been equally forgiven through his atoning sacrifice at the cross. We have all been given new life in him. He has poured out his spirit into all of our hearts. We have all become children of God. We do not have to perform or live up to certain standards to be acceptable to God. We have already been made holy and righteous in Christ Jesus. Because of Him, we are in right relationship with God. My friends, we have been set free. And there is, and if there is to be activity which is going to flow out of that new life in Him, it's activity that's born out of joy. It's like you can't keep it in. And what's more, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not up to you. It's going to be an overflow of thanksgiving, not done out of any sense of guilt or obligation. It is important that we fill our lives with the truth of the gospel to fight this battle. Jesus Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1, great verse. You know why Jesus set us free? freedom isn't that cool for freedom Christ has set you free to live it to enjoy it to praise him for it what a gift for freedom Christ has set us free you know in Matthew 23 earlier we read about how these Pharisees, these scribes had burdened people well you know what Jesus said in Matthew 11 he said hey my yoke is easy my burden is light for freedom Christ has set us free praise God that it's no longer I who have to live 
It's Christ who lives in me now. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. He died for me. Jesus gave it all. And now I can live free in him. You know, God never intends for us to burn out. But he did call us to burn brightly. The only way we can do that is by resting into the freedom which he bought for us at such an expensive price. This is the true gospel. The gospel of grace, not performance, but saved, cleansed, made fully acceptable by the blood of Jesus. We need to cling to it in our own lives. We need to constantly be encouraging one another with it. And then that's the gospel that by the power of the Holy Spirit, individually and corporately, that world needs to hear that gospel. Let me finish with a promise which Jesus made in John. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Friends, that's where we need to live, in the gospel of truth. Because if the Son shall set you free, oh baby, you will be free indeed. I'm so glad of a Jesus that would be angry about this. A righteous anger that bears out the heart of God which calls us to live in the freedom which he's given us. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. You are a good God. We love your heart. And every time we get the privilege of seeing it opened up to us even more, we love it even more. We love you even more. Lord, we thank you that you are our Savior and our Lord, that you have called us to a life that is in you, a life that is submitted into your hands, caring, loving, tender hands. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the God who binds up the brokenhearted, who will care for the needy, and Lord, who will help us walk in freedom. Lord, it's a privilege. Strengthen us. Guide us, we pray, in the power of your Holy Spirit, according to your word each and every day, individually and as a church. For your glory, our precious Saviour, amen. I, um, I had a really nice thing happen today. Nobody knew that that passage had taken that turn for me. Now, the music team, I thought, oh, I don't know what song they've probably chosen at the end. And there's nothing wrong with a lot of the songs. I surrender all would have been perfect with perhaps another one of those interpretations. But it's not in this passage. And then somebody came to me this morning and said, what would you like to sing as the last song? And I was able to choose. So will you stand and sing with us as we sing our final song?